So many forces that seem to be about other aspects of human life, economics, geography, identity, politics, are in fact also intimately connected to health. That connection isn't just incidental, it's fundamental. Once you begin to see it, it's everywhere, and it comes through in concrete, important ways, ways that impact human well-being. Transportation, how we choose to get around, is one such aspect of daily life. We usually talk about it as traffic patterns, transit fares, bus schedules, and commute times. For some, it's a fascinating subject. For others, it's simply background noise. There, but hardly worth remarking upon. And yet getting from one place to another is something we nearly all have to do, most often on a daily basis. I started riding a bicycle to get around my city about 15 years ago, and have loved it ever since. I can't get everywhere I need to go by bike, but it's long been my preferred means of transportation. More recently, I've become interested in the greater benefits of cycling, the factors that influence people's decisions to choose one mode of transportation over another, and how better transit makes for better lives, and even a better world. At the same time, I've seen more and more news of rising rates of car crashes, pedestrian deaths, and of cars becoming less safe instead of safer over the past few years. And that's news I've found it difficult to ignore. As I've learned more about these issues, the cascading implications of something as basic as how you get to work, drop your children off at school, or run your errands have revealed themselves to me. Of course, there's traffic and noise and air pollution, but there's also your individual health, your risk of injury, of death even, the look of the built environment, and your feeling of connection to it. I really believe, and there's evidence to support this, that how you get around even impacts your mood. To explore the health and safety dynamics surrounding urban transit, I was fortunate to be able to speak to Kay Teske, Professor Emeritus of the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, and a leading academic in the field. After beginning a career focused on occupational exposure risks, Kay started a new research program in 2004 called Cycling in Cities. That research focused on the interaction between factors like the type of bike route available to riders and the risk of injury or the decision to ride a bike. It has contributed scientific evidence for building routes that welcome cycling in North American cities, and Kay has been involved in provincial, national, and international policymaking related to cycling. Even after her retirement, Cycling in Cities continues to be a thriving research initiative. Talking to Kay helped me better understand the facts around cycling and urban transit, and to more clearly see how, as a society, the way we get around isn't pure happenstance. It's the result of deliberate decisions and clear choices, and we live with the consequences of those choices every day. For those of you who haven't thought much about these issues or found them of interest, I hope our conversation helps to highlight their importance. And now, here's my conversation with Kay Teske. Kay Teske, welcome to Practicing. 
I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your work and about about cycling. Kay, you dedicated quite a bit of your career to understanding cycling safety and factors influencing the choice of cycling as a means of transportation. How did you come to study cycling? Well, it's been a very circuitous route. I didn't actually start my career with anything to do with cycling. Um, I was an occupational health. I taught people about how to um, measure exposures in work environments and how to control them. But I loved cycling and I used to cycle to work. I used to cycle to university and so on. And uh, it was really interesting when my daughter was born, I started thinking about cycling so differently. And I started worrying about the kind of routes uh, that were available for people to cycle. Because I know, you know, kids, they can't cycle in a straight line. They're always all over the place. And I just thought, wow. And I thought when she was a bit older and I thought I might have a bit more time, I would do some volunteer advocacy. And right about that time, when she was about 10, the city of Vancouver has a bicycle advisory committee, and they advertise for people who wanted to belong to that. And I got on that committee. And when I was on it, the discussion was so strange. A lot of the advocates that from the public were saying the same thing as the engineers, which is it's safer to ride on a road with cars than away from traffic. I mean, I'm a researcher, so I thought, you know, lots of things turn out to be not the way you expect. And so I thought, okay, that seems possible. But I really wanted to see the research for myself. And so when I looked at the data, first of all, it was meager. And I also could see so many ways to improve the research. That was what started my research into cycling, is thinking that I could make some improvements and add to the literature. So probably the last 15, 20 years of my career, slowly but surely, almost completely shifted to cycling and my occupational health research (laughs) diminished. It's fascinating how one counterintuitive observation you heard prompted a whole new phase of scientific exploration for you. You you were a professor of public health. You're an emeritus professor of public health. How is this a public health question and not, say, an urban planning or engineering question? What are the health implications of how people get around? Well, first of all, it's all of those things. And I must say that uh, in my own career in occupational health, I mean, engineering is a huge component of it. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that there was overlap between public health and engineering, also social sciences and so on. Public health implications, first of all, for anything to do with traffic are injuries. Injuries are an issue. Air pollution is an issue. But then sedentary life is an issue. And, you know, bicycling has some huge advantages, both at the individual level. So if you are more active, your risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, dementia, depression, certain cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer are all much reduced. And there have been lots of studies, both of that sedentary living in general, but also bicycling in specific, showing that life expectancy is lengthened 
when you are more active. And uh, there have been some studies suggesting that you may gain one to four years of life from active transportation like bicycling. Of course, on a community level, you add so much wonderful stuff as well, because bicycling is low noise, noise is associated with stress and heart disease, low air pollution, virtually no air pollution, and air pollution is associated with lung disease and heart disease. And of course, it, the risk that you impose on others by bicycling is so infinitesimal compared to when you are driving. So yes, the health implications are all over the place. Yeah, just so much better. Tell us a little bit about cycling in Canada and maybe Canada and the U.S. more broadly. How, why, when do people use bikes? Who uses them? And how that differs from other parts of the world? Canada and the U.S. have a lot of similarities in biking. Although overall in Canada, there's about probably about twice as much cycling, even though we don't have quite as good weather as they do. The standard way that we measure it around the world that is pretty common platform is asking people how they get to work and back. So we talk about what's called the commute mode share, the proportion of commuters who commute by bike. And in Canada as a whole, it's sitting around one and a half percent. That was 2016 census. We're still waiting for the 2021 census uh, data to come out. In the US, it's about half that. But the differences across provinces and across states and within cities is amazing. So for example, in the big cities in Canada, Vancouver has the most cycling, about 6% of commute trips. Montreal is the next, sitting at about 4% of commute trips, and Toronto at about 3%. There are even some cities, small and medium size, that are sitting at around 10 to 15% of trips. So for example, Victoria, which is a you know warm weather in the winter, is about 11% of trips. But you know, a small place like Revelstoke in the mountains of BC. 14% of trips. Then narrow the perspective a little more. Now look within cities. If you look within Montreal, for example, in some neighborhoods, there's over 20% of trips made by bike, and in some neighborhoods, almost none. And if you look in the US, it's very similar. So for example, Boulder, Colorado, Davis, California, Portland, Oregon are all places that have you know, over 5%, even close to 10% of trips made by bike. And then there are other places that have virtually none. And people have studied why. And the why is all about what kind of environment is there for people cycling. Infrastructure, 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 by what I mean is route design, route design, route design. What would be a typical mode share for like a major European city. Do you have any off the top of your head? Two countries have very high overall countrywide mode share. That's Denmark and the Netherlands. They're sitting at about uh, 30% of work trips by bike. 
at the country level. So it's really amazing. And uh, countries like Sweden and Germany are sitting more at about sort of 10 to 15% of trips by bike. Some cities in the Netherlands, for example, have as many as 60% of their work trips by bike. So it's really amazing, the difference. And so tell us a little bit about how we can understand that difference. What are the factors that help people use their bicycles? For sure, it's the way the routes are designed. And Netherlands is a great example. I think Denmark, we could say the same thing. Pretty well, all countries at the time of the world wars, there was a lot of cycling and cars were not, not very many people owned them. And then starting in the 1950s, when car ownership became a very prestigious thing to do, car use increased and increased and roads became more dedicated to cars. And that happened in places like the Netherlands and Denmark. And then the oil crisis came in the early 1970s. And one of the responses to that was to try and decrease the amount of car use. There are also huge increases in pedestrian and cycling deaths. And that also created movements to try and increase safety. And so what both those countries did is they started dedicating parts of routes to people cycling. And that has continued over decades now. For example, in the Netherlands, there are over 35 thousand kilometers of dedicated bike routes. And that's made the difference. You can ride between towns, you can ride within towns and cities, and having that dedicated space for someone on a bike or extremely slow traffic speeds, uh, both those things have made a huge difference to people's willingness to ride. Yeah. And I think it's it's illuminating what you mentioned about the fact that even those cycling meccas like Denmark, like the Netherlands, did go the way of car traffic for a few decades until they turned it around. In the 70s, you can see photos of big traffic jams in the heart of Amsterdam, for instance, and before and after pictures where you you see cycle lanes and trams taking up the space that cars took up. So it wasn't a a given that they would be this way. These were conscious decisions that were made to to change the way cities operated, I think. No question about it. It was a deliberate decision. And that's happening now, slowly but surely, in North America. And those deliberate decisions are making a difference to whether or not people are willing to ride. We're behind, but we're making some progress. So you talked about safety as something keeping people off bikes. I think it would be counterintuitive for some people to hear that it would be such a good thing if more people cycled, particularly in cities among cars. I think a lot of people think that this is actually quite an unsafe way of getting around. You're physically unprotected against very big and heavy vehicles, sharing the road often. Can you walk me through a little bit why it still does make sense to ride bikes? Or maybe the better question is how to make it make more sense to ride a bike? I think it would be helpful to, first of all, put um, fatality risk in context. And so let me talk about data. This is data that I have from BC 
and also US data, and just putting all the different traffic modes into context. So we're used to motor vehicles. We have a certain sense of what driving risk there is, and it has been going down over the decades. Walking and cycling are a little bit less safe, higher fatality risk than driving. It's about one and a half times more risk. But if you really care about being safe when you travel, what you should be doing is taking public transit. It's 10 to 20 times safer than driving. I mean, it's a huge improvement fantastic low risk. So if you, for example, walk or bike to transit, that combination will be lower risk than driving. On the other side, something that I think a lot of people don't know is riding a motorcycle. So riding a motorcycle is about 10 to 20 times more risk than driving. So the difference between motorcycling and taking transit is about a thousand fold difference in risk. I think people think of the difference in risk between driving and bicycling and walking as big, but that's not a big difference in risk. The big difference in risk is when you look at transit on the low side and you look at motorcycling on the high side. In between those three modes of transportation that are more common, biking, walking, and driving are very similar. Now, you also asked about what can be done to improve it or, you know, whether you should be worried about biking with traffic. And the truth is that our research clearly shows that there are big differences in risk of cycling depending on where you ride. So a typical downtown in North America, you might be on a road with no place for bicycles at all, no painted bike lanes, no separated bike lanes, nothing. And you're probably riding between a parked car and moving traffic. And that has about tenfold higher risk than riding in a similar street, but on a protected, physically separated bike lane. So tenfold difference. So these are the kinds of differences that really are big. That's why There is so much emphasis on providing those protected bike lanes along busy streets. And then if you go onto a residential street, the risk is not as low as a protected bike lane, but still much better than riding on that busy street with no bike infrastructure. It's about half. So where you ride makes a difference to your risk and Putting out the uh, call for better infrastructure is uh, certainly worth it. And it makes a difference whether people want to ride. People know when they're at risk. They know they don't want to ride with all that traffic around them. And they're smart not to do that. But riding on uh, residential streets and eventually, hopefully, on great protected bike lanes all around cities so they can get to shops and offices and other workplaces really makes a difference. I guess that's the concept of induced traffic when you create a good piece of infrastructure, say a protected bike lane, you'll actually see cyclists kind of pop out of the woodwork where there never used to be many. There are many, many more once you, you build the safe option. Yeah. If you build it They Will Come has been shown again and again, not for painted bike lanes, but for physically separated 
bike lanes on busy streets. Absolutely. And the other thing that really makes a difference to inducing the traffic is having those connected. I always say a great bicycling map would just be a map of the city and that everywhere you go, you find a a comfortable, safe place to ride, which is what is happening in places like Copenhagen and Amsterdam. And we're slowly making progress. Montreal is actually one of the best cities in North America for that. There are some smaller cities like Boulder, Colorado, that are also fantastic. So building one nice long bike lane along a river or through a part of downtown won't enable people to integrate that into their daily commuting patterns and in a safe way. That's right. We did a study in Montreal and Vancouver looking at how close people lived to the better quality cycling infrastructure. So in other words, you know, when they start their trip or where are they thinking they need to go to get to someplace they feel comfortable and we know is safe. And for every kilometer closer that you lived, it was about a threefold increase in your likelihood of cycling. So being close makes a huge difference to your destination and to your starting point. I just want to um, go a little further on the point you mentioned earlier about the fact that walking and cycling are a little bit less, though not orders of magnitude, less safe than driving. Is there any data on that relative risk once appropriate cycling infrastructure is in place? In North America, where that data is from, there's such differences across cities. To be able to calculate those kinds of statistics, you need large data sets. And it's not really possible yet to see that difference. Yeah, there's not enough scale, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. You can see big decreases in cycling risk in places in Europe where they have great infrastructure. There are lots of things that contribute to it as well. Reduced speed limits, better infrastructure, other route design features. So there's so many things that change over time that it's it's not always perfect to understand the differences, but the differences compared to places that don't have that infrastructure and the differences within a country that's changed their infrastructure does seem to indicate that there's decreased injury risk because of that infrastructure. So cycling in the Netherlands would be much safer than cycling in Canada or the US? Yes, it's about three times safer than in Canada and about 10 times safer than in the US. Wow. There's been a significant increase in motor vehicle associated and pedestrian deaths over the last few years. This news that I just see in the general media seems to have emerged roughly since the start of the COVID pandemic. In 2021, the number of deaths from motor vehicle crashes increased by about 10% from 2020 at over 42,000 deaths. Uh, That's in the U.S., And those are levels that hadn't been seen since 2005. What's causing this increase in deaths? And has the same thing been observed with other modes of transportation? 
It actually didn't start just with the pandemic. Traffic injuries in Canada and the U.S. have been slowly going down over decades. They haven't been going down as fast as they have been going down in European countries, but they have been slowly going down. In Canada, in the last five years, the decrease has flattened off. In the U.S., starting about maybe three or four years ago, they started creeping up. And the thought is that a lot of the increase is happening outside of the vehicles. So they've seen big increases in pedestrian deaths and in cycling deaths. And one of the possible reasons is the increase in size of the average vehicle. SUVs and pickup trucks have become, in both countries, the dominant new purchases, and they impose much greater risk to people outside the vehicle for two reasons. One is just the sheer mass. And then the second reason is a lot of them have very flat fronts, which means that when you do get hit, it's with the maximum force, whereas most sedans have a kind of sloping hood. And so if you're hit, you may be knocked onto the hood and it's kind of a more gentle transfer of force. The other thing I guess you could say is that these truck and SUV designs often have terrible visibility, forward visibility. And there have been people who have looked at how well you can see a toddler or a small adult when you're sitting in the cab of a pickup truck. And often they have to be at least 15 to 20 feet in front of you, or else if they're closer than that, you can't see them. In Europe, the car safety data that's put out includes the safety of people outside the vehicle. In North America, the data that we provide people about, you know, how safe is your vehicle is only about how safe you are inside your vehicle. I was on a coroner's uh, death review panel for kids who were killed outside vehicles. And, you know, one of the most tragic type of death is kids getting run over in their own driveway by their parents. And these kinds of vehicles that people are buying now are set up for that kind of disaster. There's a phenomenon too, that once there are more big cars on the road, everybody feels a pressure to themselves be in a big car because no one wants to be in a small car being hit by one of these super tall, heavy cars. You want your own tall, heavy car. You might not want to be face-to-face with any of these vehicles as a pedestrian, as a someone on a bicycle. It's also a thing that once you see it and you look around at all the cars on the road, you can't help but notice it all the time, how big these things have become. But most striking of all, what you said about the fact that we don't take into account the safety of the vehicle for anyone affected by it outside the vehicle seems to be one of these extremely revealing facts about how we approach all of this as as a society, that what matters is you as the driver in your car, anybody else around you who's affected doesn't get taken into consideration. That's, that's quite shocking. There are people who are just callous, but there are drivers who have injured or killed pedestrians or cyclists whose mental health is destroyed by this. Can you imagine being someone who has killed a child while you were driving? 
It's a nightmare, especially if you're driving a vehicle that you bought because you thought it was actually safer. If you did it with the best intentions, it's terrible. It's really about the industry, I guess, or the cultural expectations we have of what these vehicles should look like. The other irony is they're these so-called utilitarian vehicles for heavy work and hauling and carrying lots of material and machinery that mainly are doing commutes with a single individual inside, maybe once in a while going on a family vacation. I read an article a few months ago that we were able to discuss a little bit before the show called The Deadliest Road in America. It was published in Vox, and it tries to get into some of the issues with pedestrian safety in in the United States by looking at one stretch of road in Florida that was statistically the most fatal for pedestrians over a certain period. The piece introduced me to the concept of the strode, so the combination street and road, which once I learned about it, could see clearly all around me. It's a ubiquitous type of of thoroughfare in, in our built environment. Can you talk a bit about strodes and about how that built environment that's focused on driving cars is, among other things, unsafe? So strode is a great concept. It was, I think, developed by a guy, an engineer named Charles Marone in the U.S. Uh, He calls himself a reformed traffic engineer. Originally, one of his things was that Traffic engineers are the only ones who can design something that regularly kills people and not be barred from their profession. (laughs) If you designed a building that fell down all the time and killed people, you would be out. The idea of a strode is that it's not a highway and it's not a city street. So it's not restricted access and it's not to really get to, say, homes and so on. It's in between. So they tend to be six or eight lane roads, very wide, usually straight, and usually with lots of traffic lights, but they're placed far apart. They're noisy, they're fast, and at every location along the way, it's unattractive for people biking or walking. It's the classic kind of road where there might be a big box store on one side of the street and on the other side of the street. And if you have something to do at both places, you'll drive from one to the other rather than walk, even though they're just across the street from the other. Because crossing that street is frightening, annoying, noisy, unpleasant. You know, those streets are dangerous for people walking and biking. They are also super dangerous for people driving. They have a much higher injury and fatality risk than driving on a motorway. So, for example, if you're driving and you come to an intersection with four lanes in each direction and you want to turn left, you have to judge the traffic coming in four lanes in the other direction to make your left turn. It's very hard to judge that. And with the size of cars, you may not be able to see exactly what's coming. And so left turn crashes are a huge problem on those roads for people driving, as well as people trying to walk across those roads. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, you can imagine someone with some kind of limitation with how quickly they can cross. Right. They might have inadequate sidewalks, lighting is poor at nighttime. And one thing the article mentioned, I think, 
the dedicated pedestrian crossings on that stretch of road described were sometimes more than a mile apart. So people are tempted to cross without a protected crosswalk because it's so far to walk to cross safely. And then accidents happen. The other thing that I think is maybe obvious, but to me was not obvious, is roads that are straight and wide, regardless of their traffic signals or posted speed limits, encourage fast driving. Yes, that's true. One of the odd things about traffic engineering in North America is that we followed standards that were meant for freeway driving. So freeways are meant to have long sight lines because the speeds are high. And also you try to remove any obstacles on the side of the road so that if you do drive off the road, there's nothing to hit. And you make the lanes wider so that you're less likely to hit a vehicle in another lane. That started to be incorporated in cities. And that's one of the reasons that old cities tend to have a, a lower traffic injury rate is they tend to have narrower roads especially in the downtown areas, feeling that you're close to other things makes it a little bit more nerve wracking to drive quickly. And so people drive more slowly. And if you can't see far in front of you, so if there's a bit of a curve, you drive more slowly. Now, having good sight lines is always a good thing when you're driving, biking or walking. That seems fine to me. But having that narrower lane width is definitely a positive. And the great thing about the wide roads where they do exist is it gives a huge opportunity to narrow those lanes, the driving lanes, and still have the same number or maybe one less. If you go from four lanes down to three, for example, in each direction, now you have room for a much wider sidewalk and a beautiful protected bike lane and maybe trees in between the driving lanes and the walking and biking lanes. And now you are starting to have a beautiful street. I think sometimes people feel that emphasizing active transportation like cycling and even walking at the expense of driving, parking, can be ableist, exclusive of people who can't do those activities because of disability or limited mobility. And I think that that makes sense. You hear it often in local debates, maybe about preserving car access and parking for streets or public amenities. Is advocating for active transportation necessarily ableist? Definitely not. For sure, there are some people who have no option to get around without being driven. But the truth is that many people who have physical disabilities or, or mental disabilities are not able to drive themselves. So they're not independently mobile if cars are the only way they can get around. But they may be able to get around by walking or with a wheelchair. And many people with physical disabilities are able to bike but not walk. So 
the way we've designed our cities is really in many ways making many people with disabilities less independent because they're dependent on someone to drive them around. But if we made our cities more friendly to a wide variety of modes, then more people would be able to get around. People in wheelchairs are often able to use the separated bike lanes, and that makes it a big improvement. A lot of people may wonder why you see so many people in wheelchairs on the road instead of on the sidewalk. And that's because our sidewalks are terrible often for wheelchairs. They often have posts or trees in them. Often there are concrete slabs that aren't level. And often the driveways come through the sidewalk at a slope. And so that makes it easier for the wheelchair to tip over. So people in wheelchairs often feel much more able to maneuver on a road. If they have the chance to use a separated bike lane, that's another big improvement for them. So in fact, it's the opposite, that all these other modes of transportation opens up a world of independence for people with all sorts of disabilities. That's not to say that every person with a disability is going to be served by walking or biking route design, but many, many will find their lives improved. Another thing I recently heard about independence of people with disabilities is the 15-minute city. So the idea of having lots of amenities close by. So in cities which are designed with strodes and everything is far away, the only way to get to grocery store or a drug store is in a car. But if you design your city so that it's compact and stores are in your neighborhood, that opens up the independence of everyone, really, uh, to be able to get around by modes other than driving. You know, disability is an interesting thing. It's a lifetime concept because when we're really small, of course, infants can't walk for toddler on up to driving age. You're, you cannot drive. So the only independent way to get around is by active modes. And then, of course, once you get a certain age, the chances are that your ability to drive go down. It's interesting if you look at the data of who is in cars resulting in fatal crashes outside the car. Recently, there was data from Paris, and it showed that almost, I think around 80 or 90% of the fatalities were caused by men driving. Right. So it's definitely an equity issue. It's, you know, more men drive cars and when they drive them, they tend to be more aggressive. And uh, they're largely the ones that are involved in uh, the fatal crashes, which is yeah, very sad. It's hard to have a conversation about transportation and cars without talking about climate change. It seems to me, the world is betting on replacing conventional internal combustion engine cars with electric vehicles so that we can keep driving, but not emit carbon dioxide. I think people often don't know or don't think about the other environmental harms from cars, even electric ones. For instance, the way we have to 
alter the built environment to enable so much driving and parking. So just to produce the concrete, the asphalt, and also what we lose in terms of natural environment when we build those things, the production of the batteries for the cars, pollution from brakes and tires, which happens no matter what drives the vehicle. And I realize climate change isn't what you studied, but what do you say to people who say that everything will be okay as long as we can just replace internal combustion cars with EVs quickly enough? Yeah, I mean, you've described some of the many problems that just exist with the car as opposed to the combustion engine. The amount of air pollution will go down, um, but it'll there'll still be um, PM10 or particulate matter, small particulate matter from tires, for example. Um, the noise is down, but it's tire noise is still there. The energy that goes into building cars, the mining of the battery minerals, all of those contribute to both climate change and to occupational exposures and uh, environmental exposures. And then, of course, the risk of injury that's from motor vehicles. We would be so much better off to spend way more money on transit, go back to the way we were kind of pre-war, have way more transit investment, it would be fantastic. The other thing that would be wonderful is if we spent our money on electric bikes instead of electric motor vehicles. They are amazing for so many things. There are a lot of experimentation going on throughout the world, including in North America, for electric bikes as delivery vehicles, especially in cramped downtowns. It makes it so much easier to get around and to find a place to stop your vehicle, not in uh, moving traffic. And the amount of battery minerals needed for an electric bike is about one one hundredth of what you need for an electric motor vehicle, car, or SUV, or truck. And I got to say that almost everyone I've ever talked to uh, who's been reluctant to bike because of hills or because of worries about how fit they are, who's tried an electric bike, comes back with a smile on their face from ear to ear. And they're just, wow, that was so much fun. And, you know, I know so many people who have decided to take up biking again once they've given it a try. There's so many advantages to, say, electric bikes over electric cars and uh, so many potential downsides of just replacing the vehicle fleet one-to-one with electric vehicles only. Let's, let's try some other options too. And from an injury perspective, I mean, there's a few things about the way electric cars are being designed. First of all, they accelerate very, very fast. It's one of their selling points, but going zero to 60 miles per hour in four or five seconds doesn't really seem to be necessary in a city. So there is a speed element there that seems counter to safety. And the other thing is their weight is huge. The batteries are very heavy, especially when you're building a huge SUV that's fully electric, you need a massive battery to power it. It's interesting that in cities that are putting in place some of these electric scooter share systems, they're putting a limit on how fast they can go. And it's the same for electric bikes. There's a limit on how fast they 
can go, but we don't put any limit, any technology limiting the speed of motor vehicles, which are infinitely more dangerous. But we have the technology, it's available. Most people now, if they have a new car, they can read on the map system that comes on that lovely digital screen, you know, what is the speed limit on this road? So there could be a limiter that would prevent that motor vehicle from going faster than the speed limit. In Europe, they're talking about implementing that kind of system. You could imagine that eventually insurance companies may charge you less If you voluntarily activate a speed limiter, and I guarantee we know that lower speed limits make a huge difference to deaths. Uh, It's worth thinking a little bit about why that seems like such a far-fetched idea, when in fact, it makes so much sense. You would think everybody would be a winner from that. You don't have to worry about it yourself. The car just does it for you. It's safer. You'll never get a ticket. But I sense there would be a great deal of resistance to taking away that type of driver autonomy. Okay, to close our conversation, I wanted to ask you what you would say to anyone who's intrigued but tentative about getting on their bicycle and riding it in the city. Maybe they're afraid of the risks or they're intimidated by the physical effort, as you were saying earlier, or they haven't ridden a bike in a long time, they don't want to get stuck in the rain. What would you tell them to encourage them to get on a bike? I would say that having a friend doing it with you would be one strategy. Many cities have bike to work weeks now. Take that as an opportunity to see if there's someone else in your workplace, for example, that's going to do that. Another option is a lot of cities have bicycle advocacy groups that have bike training, including for adults. And any of those options might be a way to make yourself feel a little bit more comfortable. And another thing you could do is just go to a bike shop and um, have someone there help you try bikes out. And especially if you're worried about the physical effort, trying out an electric bike at a bike shop might overcome that. Those are great ideas. Kay, thank you so much for taking the time to share all your expertise and insights with me today. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it when someone is interested in this topic. It's dear to my heart. That was my conversation with Kay Teske. For more information, please be sure to check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate it on the platform of your choice and spread the word. And if you have any comments or guest suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out through the show's website, practicingpod.com. That's practicing with a C. I'll be back with more conversations on practicing, so stay tuned. Practicing is hosted, written, and produced by me, Sam Freeman. Sarah Freeman provides invaluable editorial advice. Artwork is by Jeff Landman. Music is by Mr. Smith, made available under Creative Commons licensing. Thanks also to Juniper Belshaw, Jeff Dyke, Katerina Haddad, Jess Malls, Howard Mitnick, Ezra Siller, and Catherine Tang.